Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Cecilia Lunardini, who is Professor of Physics at Arizona State University. One of her primary research focus is neutrinos. Welcome, Cecilia. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I know that you have done a lot of work uh, on neutrinos. You have a few papers uh, that came out recently, and I want to start with your 2018 paper, Dirac and Myrona Neutrino Signatures of Primordial Black Holes, uh, in which you say we study primordial black holes, PBHs, as sources of massive neutrinos via Hawking radiation. Under the hypothesis that black holes emit neutrino mass eigenstates, we describe quantitatively how the PBH evolution and lifetime is affected by the mass and fermionic Dirac and Majorana nature of neutrinos. Uh, before we get into the details, Cecilia, um, I want to get some definitions. I know that uh, folks would know what black holes are. Um, we had a few episodes on black holes. Um, here we are talking about the primordial black holes. Um, we, these are black holes that are formed very, very close to uh, the, the Big Bang. Um, and uh, there is this phenomenon called Hawking radiation, uh, sort of um, the black holes evaporating, uh, so to speak. And that, uh, that radiation is emitting uh, these particles called neutrinos, right? Is that, do I understand that correctly? Yes. So, so primordial black holes, um, before we get to the neutrinos, what is sort of the mechanism of formation there? Um, how exactly would they have formed? Uh, sure. Um, we believe that um, primordial black holes could form in the early universe from density fluctuations. So um, we know that um, any object ca can possibly become a black hole if you compress it um, into a very, very small um, volume. Yeah. So... Um, the same process could happen in the early universe with um, 
of density fluctuations. There could be a, a, a regional space where there is an overdensity compared to um, the surrounding. Yeah. And if this overdensity is compressed, um, then, then it could get to the point of becoming a black hole. Um, this, this, uh, the details of this process are beyond my expertise, um, but this is a fairly reasonable thing to expect. Yeah, and uh, these are really small, right, in the grand scheme of things? Yes. So when I started to uh, learn about primordial black holes, I was uh, uh, amazed by how um, different in mass can they be. They, they can be maybe the mass of the moon, but they can also be um, the mass of uh, a, a beam, yeah. or they can be uh, even, even smaller. So they can really be very, very uh, tiny. Yeah, so, so that's really, really small. So this is uh, sort of quantum fluctuations in early universe, um, uh, kind of getting, um, uh, getting concentrated in very, very small areas. Uh, but why do we believe those, uh, those primordial black holes uh, emit uh, neutrinos? We um, have to go back to Stephen Hawking for that. Yeah. Um, Stephen Hawking wrote this seminal paper, um, which is about what we nowadays, nowadays call um, Hawking radiation. So he demonstrated that any black hole, regardless of what it is, it could be a primordial black hole or a stellar black hole, it doesn't matter. Any black hole isn't really black because it emits um, radiations. So radiation, particles, um, and that's the, the process that we call evaporation. So, um, because uh, black holes um, are a fundamentally gravity uh, objects, they would emit any particle that couples to gravity, uh, including neutrinos. So, um, it's um, the moment you have a black hole, yeah. uh, you do have Hawking radiation, and neutrinos are just a uh, expected part of Hawking radiation. Yeah, so Hawking radiation, so that, that happens to every black hole, even the even the supermassive ones, right? So it, it's a general phenomenon. Um, and so going to neutrinos now, um, we don't <laughs> we don't typically think about neutrinos, right? Uh, yeah, hadrons and electrons are very well known, um, but neutrinos uh, are particles that don't interact um, with um, with matter uh, as we know it, right? So don't interact much with matter. So we don't really see them, we don't really feel them, and and so it's difficult to measure them. That's right. And so, so just uh, could you give a uh, what is the history of neutrino? When did we first understand such things existed? Let's see, um, we go back to uh, the 20th century, um, mm. and the story goes uh, that the father of neutrinos is uh, uh, Wolfgang Pauli. He, um, uh, he um, 
made the hypothesis of a new particle existing um, as a way to um, explain uh, some strange behavior of uh, neutrinos that were produced by, by nuclear decay. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a long story, but um, let me just say that um, for a long time, neutrinos were just a hypothesis. Yeah. And then um, in the, around the mid of this 20th century, um, they were actually observed. So um, we started to um, know that these particles existed, and, uh, but that was pretty much it. So we didn't know much about the properties. Um, and one of these properties is the mass, which we still don't know, <laughs> amazingly, yeah. after all these decades. But we still don't know um, if the neutrinos uh, have something like um, a magnetic moment, for example, um, and something that um, we didn't learn until much later on is um, the fact that neutrinos oscillate. That's that that some, that's something that we that was somehow established um, at the turn of the century, around the around the year two thousand, really after after decades of of testing with the solar neutrinos, atmospheric neutrinos. Yeah. Um, so there are, still, there are still a number of unknowns on neutrinos. Mm. And one of them is the mass. One of the other one, and the yeah. other one is the, uh, the nature of the neutrinos being Dirac particles or Majorana particles, mm. um, which, uh, um, which is kind of a fundamental concept. So there are that that's 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 related to the fundamental nature of the neutrino as a particle. Right. So so they we know they have a mass, but the mass is very small. Do they have a charge? Neutrinos don't have a charge. Yeah. Um, so they are electrically neutral. Yeah. And uh, um, that's. Uh, probably the biggest reason for, for them to be so elusive, as you were mentioning earlier on, um, especially in the, in, uh, uh, early in the 1900s, um, all the particle detectors were basically uh, 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 electromagnetic detectors. They were looking for charge or um, a magnetic behavior of some sort. So uh, neutrinos don't have that. Um, and so they, uh, they only have the weak interaction uh, and that, that we know of, and, and gravity, of course. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they, uh, uh, they escape detection so, so easily, because their interaction is very weak. Yeah, so, so that's sort of the beauty of neutrinos, right? So because they don't interact, um, we can go back billions of light years and perhaps, uh, perhaps pick up pick up one on Earth, and it would have traveled that distance uh, through all sorts of things, uh, but would not have been affected by them, right? Uh, That's so, right, yes. Yeah. And so, so the other phenomenon um, of neutrinos is that, yeah, you mentioned that they, they oscillate. So there are, there are flavors of neutrinos, they go back and forth? Yes, it's... Um... It's actually a, a fairly um, easy to describe quantum uh, phenomenon. Yeah. Um, 
we know that uh, in quantum mechanics, there is this, uh, a particle is described by this function, which is called the wave function. And um, so the neutrinos could be, a neutrino could be born as, uh, say, an electron neutrino. And then its quantum wave function would evolve over time in a way that after some time, the wave function is no longer a purely electron neutrino wave function, but it has um, a little bit or even a lot actually of yeah. a different flavor. Uh, it could be uh, muon or tau. So what we um, uh, observe in detectors is this change of flavor. And the, perhaps the most striking um, demonstration of this phenomenon is solar neutrinos, because uh, we know that the sun produces electron neutrinos, and uh, it doesn't produce uh, muon and tau neutrinos. So, uh, but uh, here on Earth, we do um, have evidence that the solar neutrino flux that we uh, receive has some uh, muon and tau neutrinos in it, and that can um, only be explained by oscillations. And um, uh, actually, after the solar neutrino um, data showed this phenomenon, this was also confirmed by, uh, say, man-made experiments. So it's a fairly established phenomenon. Mm. And so the, the three flavors are uh, electron, muon, and tau? Yes, that's right. And so, uh, did I understand that? So, they, when they are made in the sun, for example, they they are made as electron um, neutrinos, and by the time they reach the Earth, they they oscillate into muons and tau. Yes, uh, yes, um, in part. Yeah. Um, that's that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, is it always the case that they they get uh, manufactured, so to speak, as as electron neutrinos? Uh, always. It depends on where they are born. There are places where neutrinos are born in all flavors, um, so it's it, it's it really varies with uh, with the type of environment um, we are talking about. Okay. Okay. And so in the paper, you say PBHs, this is primordial black holes we talked about, radiate right-handed and left-handed neutrinos in equal amounts. Um, so, 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 so what do you mean by right-handed and left-handed neutrinos? Um, okay, let me see. So... Um, uh, um, it, Yes. Uh, you, you say in the case of Dirac neutrinos, uh, PBHs radiate right-handed, left-handed neutrinos in equal amounts, thus possibly increasing the effective number of neutrino species, NEF. Yes. <laughs> Is that explainable? <laughs> it might be too complicated. Yes. So um, uh, right-handed and left-handed neutrinos, um, that, that, that may take a while to explain what that exactly means. Okay. Uh, but let me just say that um, um, it's related to the neutrino mass. So huh. if neutrinos didn't have a mass, which we know they do, yeah. but if they didn't have a mass, um, they would... Um, only exist as left-handed 
um, particles, which means that basically their spin mm. is, um, is anti-aligned with their momentum. Okay. And, uh, um, but if they have mass and if they are Dirac particles, uh, there could be another type of neutrino, which is right-handed, um, which where the um, the spin is aligned with the momentum rather than anti-aligned, mm. and so um, uh, if neutrinos are Dirac, these these two different species could exist, and so instead of having um, um, one species of neutrino emitted left-handed one. Um, yeah. In the case of a massless neutrino, if we have massive neutrinos, then you would have two species emitted. And so yeah. the black hole would radiate more uh, energy um, compared to um, the case when neutrinos don't have a mass. So when we started working on this paper, I was interested in this phenomenon that um, a lot, a lot of the literature having to do with uh, the evaporation of primordial black holes um, consider the neutrinos as massless, uh, but now we know that they are massive. And so um, I thought, well, uh, strictly speaking, a primordial black hole could radiate more energy than people previously thought. Um, mm. So I, I found that aspect interesting. And then um, since you mentioned the... Um, uh, possibility to increase the effective number of neutrino species, uh, that's related to what I was talking about. So the, the black hole would radiate more neutrino um, uh, states or more neutrino uh, uh, species, so to, so, so to speak. And then um, that would increase the number of neutrinos um, per cubic centimeter um, that we observe today. So um, I'm kind of glossing over a lot of <laughs> a lot of details, but basically cosmology gives us a measurement of this n effective, which is called the effective number of neutrino species. And if you have these right-handed neutrinos coming from the primordial black holes, this number could be higher. Yeah. Than, than expected, and so that would um, be maybe um, a way to tell that maybe there are primordial black holes in the universe. Yeah, so, so the, the Hawking radiation, uh, essentially radiation coming out of black holes, um, it, it is expected, if I understand this correctly, Cecilia, it's expected that over a long period of time, black holes will radiate away, evaporate away, uh, all the mass or information that went into it. Um, and so this radiation, is this Hawking radiation, is it, is uh, neutrinos part of that or is it fundamentally composed of neutrinos? Um, Hawking radiation is made of every um, particle uh, that we know of. So um, a black hole uh, can radiate um, pretty much everything, photons, neutrinos, electrons, um, muons, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. But um, there, is, there, there is a catch here, the fact that um, a black hole has a temperature, yeah. which is another um, 
big uh, achievement of Stephen Hawking to and and others uh, to show that a black hole is a thermodynamical object. And so um, basically the bigger the black hole, the lower the temperature. So if the temperature is really low, uh, the black hole wouldn't be able to emit um, very massive particles because the uh, thermal energy wouldn't be sufficient for that. So because mass is energy, uh, mc squared, right? So because mass is energy, um, if a black hole has too low of a temperature, uh, it wouldn't have its quantum energy uh, it's it's uh, wouldn't wouldn't be enough to produce the mass of a particular particle for example a proton may be too heavy to be produced by a really low temperature black hole so so the the, the bigger the black hole the lower the temperature yes and so so then can we expect the the bigger black holes to have more of a neutrino content in the radiation? Yes, because um, the bigger black holes wouldn't, as I said, be able to radiate the heavy particles. And so they would yeah. only be able to radiate the away the um, low mass particles. And so there could be black holes that only emit photons, gravitons, and, um, and neutrinos. Do we have a sense of sort of the distribution of this uh, primordial black holes? Um, is it, you know, sort of everywhere? Uh, what, is, what do we know about, you know, sort of the distribution of PBHs? Um, you mean spatial distribution, like where they are? Um, yeah, no, you know, just, so I, I'm wondering, just like the CMB, you know, if you were to uh, sort of look at the early universe, will we find them? Um, everywhere? Um, probably at the beginning, they would be um, more or less uniformly distributed. Um, but in the universe today, they would probably be um, behaving like the dark matter does. They would um, be part of galactic halos uh, in other words, they would be they would cluster gravitationally on uh, large structures like a, a, like a galaxy or a cluster of galaxies. So if these black holes are still around, um, they would uh, they would behave like like the dark matter does. So they would be um, in in halos of galaxies. Wouldn't they have by now? Wouldn't they have radiated away? Would 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 they not have disappeared because they're really small? It depends on the mass um, that they have when they are born. Um, yeah. So, um, their if their mass is less than um, a certain value that I'm trying to remember, uh, basically, uh, yes, they would have to. Um, they, they, they by now they would have completely evaporated. Um, but if their mass is larger. Uh, then they would take longer to evaporate and they could still be around. Um, so yeah. the, roughly speaking, the dividing line between a black hole still being around today or not, I think it's something like 10 to the 15 uh, grams, if I recall correctly. 
into 15 grams. So, um, so, so this paper, you say we obtained the diffuse flux of right helical neutrinos from PBHs at the Earth. Um, and so, 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 so we, we can actually attribute these neutrinos that we find here to PBHs specifically? Um, in principle, that's a possibility. Yeah. We um, considered um, that for certain um, masses of these black holes and certain, a certain density of these black holes, uh, the flux of neutrinos that they generate over time could be fairly large. And so we could um, s detect these neutrinos um, if we had a very uh, powerful detector. So um, now life is never ideal in the sense that uh, a, a real uh, neutrino detector would have all sorts of issues like uh, background um, and so on. So at the end of the paper, we conclude that in practice, given, given the limitations that current neutrino detectors have, um, it may not really be possible to detect the neutrinos uh, from primordial black holes. But, but in principle, that's a possibility. And that alone is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because there, there was some suggestion that this primordial black holes could be, as, as you mentioned, could be part of the dark matter that we are still seeking. Um, is that still a plausible hypothesis? That has been, uh, 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 there has been a, a, a debate on this um, kind of going back and forth in the scientific yeah. community. Um, the latest I, I heard is that um, new, primordial black holes could be part of the dark matter, maybe even a large part, hmm. but probably not the entire dark matter. So a 100% primordial black hole dark matter is a bit difficult to justify considering the um, experimental bounds that we already have, constraints of various types. Um, but there could be scenarios where maybe um, a fraction of the dark matter is made of primordial black holes. I want to go into uh, another paper uh, in 2020, Supernova Neutrinos, Directional Sensitivity and Prospects for Progenitor Identification. Uh, you say here, we explore the potential of current and future liquid scintillated neutrino detectors at a kiloton mass to localize a, a pre-supernova neutrino signal in the sky. In other words, preceding the core collapse of a nearby star, tens to hundreds of inverse beta decay events will be recorded and their reconstructed topology in the detector can be used to estimate the direction to the star. So, so this is now neutrinos from supernovas. And um, you, you, so, so we, have, we, have a, um, we have an idea here that before the supernova happens, the, a pre-supernova time period, uh, it is creating neutrinos that we could pick up and, and potentially get ready to see the supernova? Yes, that's what excites me. Um, yeah. uh, 
the fact that um, think about Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is is the most famous nearby star that could go supernova anytime, yeah. and we don't know when that's going to happen. And um, um, if it wasn't for these neutrinos that our paper is about, we we wouldn't know until the star literally uh, uh, collapses, and yeah. and then soon after becomes a supernova. But in this paper, we um, uh, we uh, show that before the star collapses, which is the beginning of the supernova process. Um, we can detect these these neutrinos uh, that are produced at that at that stage, and so in principle, we could know that um, um, you know tomorrow there is there is Betelgeuse exploding, and that that would be quite exciting. Yeah, so Betelgeuse is is a red giant, uh, reasonably close to us, really big. Star, uh, I can quite remember, um, Cecilia. There was some suggestion that uh, it could go supernova within something like 150,000 years, which is a blink of an eye in cosmic time. So it is getting ready to go to supernova. Go supernova, right? Um, yes, I, I'm not informed about exactly the number of years, <laughs> give or take, but. Um, it's it's ready. It's ready. It could be any time, and any yeah. time any time for an astronomer means any time in the next thousands of years. So we shouldn't <laughs> we shouldn't hold our breath. But it's ready. It could be tomorrow. It could be in in a hundred years. Could the supernova? I know that this is not part of the paper, but uh, could the Betelgeuse supernova have an adverse effect on Earth? Not really. No. Um, a supernova is um, very a very spectacular event. Um, it's it's a star that collapses, so it it, it implodes first, and that explodes, yeah. and then when it explodes, um, it's it's very bright. Uh, in the case of Betelgeuse, we could we could see it by naked eye for sure, but yeah. in terms of um, uh, the effect of its radiation and neutrinos and light um, on uh, on us and on our daily activities, it wouldn't it wouldn't affect them in any way. So, it's it's a safe um, show to just enjoy <laughs> without any worry. Right, right. Uh, and so, so you talk about supernova neutrinos. So. Um, so can we actually detect neutrinos from supernova different from what we talked about in the previous paper, uh, different from PBHs? Um, I'm not sure. Can you maybe repeat yeah. the question? Yeah. So the neutrinos emanating from a supernova, are they different from the, the um, neutrinos uh, we expect to see from a primordial black hole? Yes, they are. They are different um, in many ways. Um, these neutrinos have higher energies, so it's it's yeah. easy, it much much easier to detect them. And in the case of Betelgeuse, we would detect 
thousands or even more of them, millions probably of them. Um, and they are also different in the way they are born uh, because uh, in a primordial black hole or in any black hole, um, the process is Hawking radiation, which is, which is a gravity phenomenon. Uh, in a supernova, they are born out of the very hot and dense environment um, that, the, that, that the star um, has after it has collapsed. So a star collapsing under its own weight becomes very dense. And so um, in this very dense and hot environment, um, nuclear processes take place that produce these neutrinos. So I guess the main difference is that um, in the case of a supernova, it's mostly a nuclear phenomenon. And in that primordial black hole is really fundamentally a gravitational phenomenon. Okay. Uh, you describe a technique in this paper and you say it's in principle possible to uniquely identify the progenitor star. So, um, so the, the existing technology and ideas you discuss in the paper, we, if we pick up a neutrino, we could identify where it came from or what direction it came from. And then if you go back and look at that in that direction, if you find a supernova, then we could say that is a supernova that created it. Um, in principle, um, yes. Yeah. Let me just say that uh, um, there are situations, and this is not one of them, but there are situations where um, if you have one neutrino, you can point to uh, the point in the sky where it came from. In this case, it's a little more complicated because um, what really gives us the information is the statistical distribution of these neutrinos. So we are talking about maybe detecting 100, 100 uh, give or take neutrinos from, say, Betelgeuse, for example. And yeah. um, it, what the detector really observes is not the neutrino, is, is a, kind of a, a vector which um, is related to the products of this neutrino. So this neutrino uh, interacts with the interact with the detector and then out of this interaction you have a positron and a neutron and those can be observed. And you can, you can create a vector using these two and then, yeah. and then this vector will have a certain orientation, but each, if each neutrino coming in would give you a differently oriented vector. But statistically, if you look at the distribution of these vectors, you, um, you can tell, you can, you can infer with a certain error, of course, uh, the direction of the neutrinos, because these vectors are not uniformly distributed. They, are, uh, they, they have a, a non-uniform uh, uh, distribution of their direction. And so um, yeah. using this information, we can, um, we can define a, a region of the sky where uh, the neutrinos could come from. So we, can, we cannot narrow down to a point, but we can narrow yeah. down to maybe um, a cone of a few tenths of degrees uh, width. And then we look in that cone and see what stars are in that cone. And 
maybe Beetlejuice would be one of them. <laughs> yeah, so uh, as you say, so you, if you see a few uh, neutrinos, uh, the statistical distribution of those will give us some, some probability um, that it is in, in some region of the sky. And then you say in the paper, uh, you can then, uh, that if, if it is happening pre-supernova, you can alert um, other observational uh, modalities, multi-messenger observations, uh, invisible in radio and other, other types of observations uh, to actually pick up more data. So this is almost like a early alert system if it is in place, right? Yes, uh, I would call it a very early uh, uh, alert because um, it's, uh, we're talking about maybe hours or in certain yeah. very fortunate cases, we are even talking about maybe a day uh, before yeah. the star goes supernova. And so that's enough yeah. time to um, plan for, for it. So uh, something that um, um, fascinated me uh, when I heard about this from, from a, a, an experimentalist is that there is a human factor, which I was not aware of, but um, the human factor is this. So if you have, for example, 30 minutes uh, to yeah. plan for watching a supernova, this may not be enough because it just takes time to make phone calls and get a hold <laughs> of people and, and decide what to do and come to a consensus and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So in addition to technical things like, okay, you have to maybe turn your telescope in a certain direction, which takes time. But uh, I was really fascinated by the human factor of things that if you have six hours, maybe you can kind of gather the relevant people and decide something. But if you have 30 minutes or, or, or five minutes, maybe not. So, yeah. 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 I, I wondered, you know, if such a uh, early added system is in place, uh, perhaps there could be something programmatic, right? So if, if it is picking up um, and you have some, you know, maybe some AI techniques or something like that that identifies uh, the region and uh, it can then programmatically turn the telescopes to look at them. Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. So there, yeah. there could be um, a protocol in place um, for that. So if a telescope was um, suitable for observing a nearby supernova, which, which is not always the case, then, then yeah. uh, now that we showed that it's possible to know beforehand if a star is going to go supernova, then there could be some sort of protocol in place already so that when the alert comes, we, just, uh, we can just activate the protocol and orient the telescope maybe automatically or um, in, in yeah. some sort of uh, um, organized way, yeah. Yeah, as you say, if you remove humans from the process, it becomes a lot better. There is actually um, already uh, a, a work in this direction. Um, it's called the SNUS 2.0 uh, network, which has to do with uh, exactly this, using neutrinos as an alert, for the astronomy community. And uh, yeah. um, that has to do with exactly um, uh, creating alerts um, and also creating protocols for how to react to an alert. 
Right, right. Uh, I want to uh, go into another paper that just came out, uh, a concordant scenario for the observation of a neutrino from the tidal disruption event AT2019 DSG. Uh, you say we introduce a phenomenological concordant scenario with a relativistic jet uh, for the tidal disruption event uh, DSG AT29 DSG, which has been proposed as a source of the astrophysical neutrino event Ice Cube. Um, so the tidal disruption event, this is a star getting closer to a black hole, uh, getting uh, getting sucked in, right? Is that the, is that the event? Uh, pretty much, yes. Um, this is something that we, uh, we hear about maybe in, in popular science talks. Uh, what, what happens if you get too close to a black hole? And um, it's kind of scary. So the answer is uh, you would be ripped apart because uh, uh, your feet will be pulled in with a stronger force <laughs> yeah. than your head. And this, this is what uh, happens to, to stars. If, the, if a star gets too close, then it gets um, ripped apart, which is what this tidal disruption means. And so instead yeah. of a star uh, uh, rotating around the black hole, we just have a, a stellar, stellar debris uh, that are eventually yeah. um, accreted by the black hole. Right, right. Yeah, and so um, this is something that uh, we have been able to observe. Uh, this, uh, so, so we have this, we know this happened, right? This uh, particular event, uh, AT2019 DSG. And um, we could actually see uh, neutrinos from that particular event. So um, tidal disruption events are a fairly well-established phenomenon in astronomy. We have many of them observed. Um, they, yeah. they are um, fairly um, commonplace uh, events. Um, but what's special about this particular one, AT2019DSG, is that um, we, it could, let's say, um, it could have... Uh, produced a neutrino that was detected at ice cube. So AT2019DSG is the first tidal disruption event uh, for which there is a coincident neutrino detected at ice cube. And this, this coincidence is um, unlikely to be uh, accidental. So prob a, a probability estimate tells us that this coincidence is probably causal, not accidental. So yeah. AT2019DSG could be the parent of this neutrino. And that's, that's, that's a first. That's very interesting. Yeah, so ice cube um, is, uh, is a big ice cube <laughs> in, the, in the South it Pole. It literally right? is. Uh, I'm not sure it's exactly <laughs> a cube, but it's, it's a yeah. big block of ice, which has been... Um, instrumented um, with um, uh, various um, small detectors. Uh, so it's, it's an array of smaller detectors. But yeah, it's basically a yeah. big block of ice which has been transformed into um, a detector. And so, so the idea that is that this high energy neutrinos uh, from whatever uh, system, whatever event that happened uh, out there, this high energy neutrinos passing through that ice cube 
uh, will leave some telltale signs um, of uh, of that happening. And we, if we pick that up, uh, then we can trace that back, uh, just like uh, you were talking about in the previous paper. We can trace that yeah. back to a region where that might have happened. Yes. So this is one of those cases where um, you can tell from a single neutrino, um, of course, with, a, with, with an error, um, where uh, you can tell uh, the point in the sky where the neutrinos, neutrino came from. It's doable with one single neutrino because these high-energy neutrinos, uh, when they enter the eyes, uh, they produce a, ca- a, a, a shower. So they kind of illuminate, they illuminate the eyes. Um, but they do it in a way which is very much uh, beamed. So, and, then, and then the direction of the beam tells us the direction of arrival of the neutrinos um, with, with a pretty good accuracy. Hmm. Um, so how often, how often could we uh, pick up something like that? Do we have an estimate of how often that would happen? Uh, meaning ice cube detects something like this? Um, every year, IceCube detects uh, of the order of 10 high-energy neutrinos from outside our galaxy. So that's the number for the entire crop, say, of neutrinos that IceCube has. Um, when we talk about tidal disruption events in the specific, these are fairly rare um, phenomena. And so... The estimate is that uh, maybe a few tenths of percent of the entire neutrino um, flux that IceCube is observing could be from tidal disruption events, N- not much more than that. So we are talking about um, uh, less than half of the total flux being due to tidal disruption events. Okay. And so the tidal disruption event, as as you mentioned, um, a star getting ripped apart and pulled back into a into a, a black hole. Um, but uh, these ten percent, uh, do they have to be these blazars, as they call it, uh, so, you know, things that have a jet that is sort of aligned towards us? Uh, is that a necessary condition for these types of uh, high high energy neutrinos? It's, it's a plausible uh, scenario. Um, let me just say that there is an important difference between blazers and tidal disruption events in the fact that uh, yeah. uh, a blazer is something that has a jet which is always on. So the jet is kind of a permanent yeah. feature of, of this particular galaxy. But a tidal disruption yeah. event is a transient event. So the star comes... Um, creates the, the accretion, this accretion of the star on the black hole produces a flare and this flare can last maybe for a year or two but then it will just fade away so um, there could be a jet and in fact in our paper we um, present a model where there is a jet uh, so the hypothesis is that there is a jet um, but if there is a jet in a tidal disruption event, that's a transient one. It's a jet that's born uh, when um, this, the black hole starts to accrete the stellar debris, 
and then it's on for months or years and then and then shuts off and it has to point in our direction as you as you mentioned because um otherwise we wouldn't we wouldn't see the neutrinos yeah so this high energy neutrinos cecilia how how many orders of magnitude are we talking about compared to the ones that we pick up let's say from the sun um I'm not sure about the question. Can you maybe rephrase? Yeah. So, so when you say this high energy neutrinos uh, that is coming from, let's say, a, a tidal disruption event or or something like that, uh, how much, how many orders of magnitude more energy uh, are are those compared to? You know the the ones that might be created in the sun, for example. Okay, um, a lot, many orders of magnitude. So uh, it's, <laughs> there is a big difference. So the sun produces neutrinos um, over a wide range of energies. Uh, the yeah. higher higher energy neutrinos from the sun reach energies of the order of ten MeV, uh, ten mega electron volts. Mm-hmm. And for yeah. the ice cube neutrinos, we are talking about 100 uh, of the order of 100 TeV uh, or even 1,000 TeVs, which would be a PeV. So um, let's say uh, maybe eight orders of magnitude, if I've done, <laughs> done the math, right? Eight orders. Yeah. Okay. And so this EV measure, it is actually measuring the mass of the neutrino. Of the neutrino? No, these these neutrinos are um, have such a ha- such high energy that basically yeah. um, it's it's impossible to know their mass uh, because because as I said, mass is energy. So the total energy of a neutrino uh, detected at ice could be so high. That's that that the percentage due to its mass is is so tiny that it's practically negligible. So. Yeah, um, I was wondering if we know the energy, couldn't we sort of back compute, like you say, what the mass is, uh, or it doesn't follow. Um, the reasoning is a bit different. Um, the way to think about this is perhaps. Um, the let me see the formula for the energy of a particle, uh, which is yeah. the rest energy um, plus the kinetic energy, and um, mm-hmm. um, so the kinetic energy is so high that it totally overwhelms. Uh, the rest energy. So it's, it's, and of course, every time you measure the energy of a neutrino, there is an error associated with the measurement. So uh, we can't really, um, we can't really tell uh, what, um, what, what the mass of the neutrino is. Yeah. Uh, But more broadly, this, this appears to be um, sort of an early warning system for many, many things, right? We talked about the supernova. We, uh, if if the tidal disruption events are producing high energy neutrinos, 
Um, so th this could be sort of integrated with the multi-messenger observations um, protocols, as you mentioned, um, that, that gives us uh, a higher success rate, uh, success rate, I would think, to observe phenomena we want to observe. That's right. Uh, that's the power of multi-messenger uh, astronomy. Uh, the integration of different signals coming from uh, photons, neutrinos, gravitational waves, um, cosmic rays, and um, um, the interplay is very powerful. In many cases, and maybe the supernova case is the most striking one, um, the neutrinos come first, but that's not always the case. Uh, so in the, in the case of tidal disruption events, um, the neutrino that was observed came uh, about five months later than the initial astronomical observation of the tidal disruption event. So uh, it's, it's, it, it can go both ways. Uh, neutrinos can be the early alert or the early alert, alert could be, for example, a radio observation or, or an X-ray observation. And then, and then the neutrino detector could um, focus a search in that direction and see what they find, which, which has actually been done. IceCube sometimes does these, these uh, archival searches on the basis of alerts from, uh, from for example, X-ray or gamma-ray um, surveys. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is an exciting area. There is a lot to be learned. Um, it, it, seems, uh, it seems like we still don't know all the production mechanisms uh, for neutrinos. Uh, but if we have a robust way to pick them up here on Earth, then we can trace them back and, uh, and start asking questions uh, what might be there. Definitely. Um, so, so, if you, yeah, so if you look forward, Cecilia, in the next five, 10 years, um, what, what are the areas that you believe um, we will make a significant progress in, this, uh, in the area of neutrinos? There are two um, different areas that uh, are very promising. Uh, one is, uh, broadly speaking, um, man-made neutrinos. So there is, there is a big push, especially um, uh, here in the United States, to build, um, create very powerful beams of neutrinos. And then these beams are man-made, so we know them very well. We know their energy, we know their composition, and we can use them to learn about uh, uh, the properties of neutrinos. And then um, it, there are other man-made neutrino, um, neutrino experiments where um, scientists look for the neutrino mass. So that's also very promising. Um, and it's something I really, I, I'm really excited about that, that maybe a few years from now we will know what the neutrino mass is from these very high precision laboratory experiments. Then there is the whole uh, topic of neutrinos as part of the multi-messenger multi astronomy. And in that area, I think what 
what's what's to look forward to among other things is the interplay with gravitational waves uh, gravitational waves yeah. is still um, somehow a science of its own to a large extent but there are so many possible connections with neutrinos um, tidal disruption yeah. events should produce gravitational waves supernovae should produce gravitational waves um, so, so there is there is a, a, lo a lot of potential there which is still uh, uh, unexplored, and and that's where I see myself uh, working on in the next few years. Yeah, just very quickly, uh, the, the do gravitational waves travel very close to the speed yes. of light, and so do neutrinos, that's right? right? Yes. And so, if um, if they both are produced in a, in an event, uh, then uh, they're expected to arrive on Earth uh, close to simultaneously. It, it depends on the timing of the production. If the answer is yes, if yeah. the gravitational waves and the neutrinos are born at the same time, um, which may not yeah. be exactly true because the physics that governs gravitational waves is is different from the one that, that governs neutrinos. Um, so, but the difference in timing would be the difference uh, accumulated at birth. Uh, but, but if the two were, were generated at the same time, they should arrive at the same time. Yeah, I, I, was, I was just thinking, if there's a systematic difference in the production time, then one will always uh, give an early warning for the other, but that doesn't seem to be the case, right? Um, there could be uh, cases where um, there is a significant lag uh, in the production of a gravitational wave with respect to the production of the neutrinos. And one example is, we haven't touched on this before, but let me just mention um, mergers. So if we have if we have a yeah. merger, for example, we have maybe um, a merger of uh, two neutron stars or one black hole and a neutron star. Uh, before the merger happens, so when the two objects are kind of still approaching each other, we should start observe, observing gravitational waves. And this is what this is what has been seen. So uh, the LIGO experiment observes yeah. these these this phenomenon. Uh, but if we have a merger. Um, after the merger has uh, occurred and the two objects have become one, then, uh, then there could be the formation of, of, an, of an accretion disk. And this accretion disk could produce neutrinos, which we can, which we can detect. So in that case, the neutrinos will, will come um, after the initial observation of gravitational wave, waves. And so the gravitational waves will be the alert for the neutrino detectors. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Cecilia. Thanks so much well, for Thank you for inviting me. It was my pleasure. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at 
scientificsense.com